Hi there, welcome along to another episode of Sporting Lives. This one, episode 11. Uh, so good that we split it into a three-parter for you, and it is with, well, in my view, a racing legend. Yep, a man who rode over 470 winners, including some of the, the big races on the jumps calendar, and of course, had a few close calls as well. We'll be discussing uh, all of that with uh, a man who spent decades as well with a stellar broadcasting career in that BBC team that also comprised uh, Sir Peter O'Sullivan, Julian Wilson and Jimmy Lindley. And more recently, uh, you've seen him perhaps on some of the racing satellite channels. I am delighted to say welcome to my episode 11 guest, Richard Pittman. I mean, there's so much to talk about with you, which is why I wanted to, to get you on. Um, I remember as a, as a young lad, you know, watching you ride at the back end of your career. In fact, you are, uh, you have the distinction, would you believe, of being one of the first autographs I have in a little autograph book that's somewhere in a box in the house. Um, and that was because I had the racing book from a young age and I used to nag my dad to take me to the local track at Weatherby. And yeah. I think it was, this was just after you'd started to broadcast and you must have been there covering a few races one day and it was yeah. on the race card. I've still got the race card itself with, you know, those um, uh, jagged edged uh, dressmaking scissors, which I must have yes. chopped yes. it off and stuck it into my um, autograph book. And it's still yeah. got the Panama cigar hurdle qualifier on the front cover. Wow. Of the race card. So there you go. That's it. An early meeting you had that you wouldn't remember, but I, I certainly do. What, where did you get the racing bug from in the first place? Where did I get the racing bug? Yeah. Uh, by default. Um, I went to Tewkesbury Grammar School near Cheltenham. I was born near the race course, and we used to go seven miles by double-decker bus to the grammar school. I was in the top three in every subject, took nine subjects. Of, they were O-levels in my days. You won't know about those. And... Um, I failed nine, all nine. Absolutely devastated. My father, I think, had been a bit cocky in telling everyone I'd do this, that, and the other. And so he said, look, if you've decided to be a bum, go and be one somewhere else, get a job. So I was small, I could ride, and I went. There were, in those days, around Cheltenham, you know, and Cleve Hill, that lovely backdrop behind the race course, there were 10 trainers around there, uh, David Nicholson's father, Frenchie, Hamey, all sorts of people there. And we used to go up and over on the top and gallop on the Cleve Hill, which was marvellous. So I got thrown into it, really. Nothing else I could do. Uneducated, small, could ride. <laughs> so who, who took you on, first of all? Who gave you that first opportunity? Well, you... You wouldn't, you wouldn't know any of them now, uh, but they were small trainers. And my reasoning was that if they were small, they, they'd give me a chance, you know, because they wouldn't be jockeys. They weren't retained in those days anyway. But uh, I went to a man called Phil Doherty and uh, just behind the race course. And within six months, he was warned off for life. In those days, if a horse was found to have any substance in it, that it was illegal. And even if he was proved it wasn't him, he was warned off. And, you know, Jonathan, in those days, the jockey club were, who were running things, not the BHA, and um, their offices were in Cavendish Square, just off Oxford Street. And I walked in. You can imagine, little 16-year-old, failed academic. Uh, I looked after the horse. That's why I had to go, you see. It, it, 20 to 1, pulled up, hadn't run for two years. I, I'm hopeless. But anyway, 
they put us in a little room underneath the stairs that had a door there, you know, for the luggage normally, I suppose. So I'm in there and the train is sitting down all hunched up and a little table there with a cigarette uh, tin, you know, sardine tin or something if you had a cig. Knock on the door, called in, and a guy in morning suit and tails led us into this this great big room that had big double doors and a, and a tiled floor and you marble floor and you walked across it to three wise men miles away with the, your your footsteps echoing so you were guilty and in shreds you know 16 year old you know in shreds by the time you even got there so i moved he was warned off and sadly sent him to drink and one thing or another but uh, I then moved around that area to other small trainers and I went four years I got a license pretty quickly because I was I pestered them you know are you going to get me a license this week you know no next week anyway um I rode for four seasons without a single winner with different trainers um and my first recognition was in a petrol station going to Leicester and I'm filling up and went to pay. And the guy said, oh, I know you. You're the man that can't ride a winner, aren't you? You know, <laughs> and I've been known for my failures ever since. Very sad. So the first ride, I believe, was at, at Hereford, 1961. Rosaggio, yeah. Yep. Yeah, lovely, lovely little horse, yeah. I love Hereford. First winner um, between Christmas and New Year, 64, at, uh, at Fontwell. What do you remember about the first winner? Um... My first winner I was disappointed with. Now you can imagine having gone four years without a winner and then getting one, wow, you know. But it won by 12 lengths, never came off the bridle. And I thought, well, where, where's the magic? I thought a jockey, I thought you had to be magical, good, great. No, you just don't fall off and use your head on the way round. <laughs> so it, rather than that, um... That thrilling finish you'd pictured where you were all out and you just got up on the line and everyone was saying, Pittman, fantastic. It was just like showing things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we'll obviously talk about a lot in between. What about your last ride as well? I noticed that was on St. Swithin, who's a horse I do recall from uh, being a youngster, 1975 at Stratford. Yeah. Um, I decided to go out then because the BBC had offered me the job for the uh, paddock commentator for the second time in two years and it wouldn't last and most of my good horses I had five of the top horses only two were left um, and so I decided I knew when I was going to go out it was the last day of the season in those days we used to pack up then Stratford and Market Raisin boys who were really going for the for the title would ride at Stratford in the afternoon and Market Raisin in the evening <laughs> anyway since with a lovely horse Fred Winters I wanted to finish on a Fred Winter horse and I was quite agricultural in my style. I've got some good pictures, but you know, mostly they're not so good. And I decided I'd have a good one. And I'm jumping the last fence up the neck, Frankham style, you know, <laughs> the, one of the few times I looked like it. But it was a great way to go out. Nice summer's day. I, knew I had a job to go to, Jonathan. That's important. Yeah, uh, fantastic. And what a job. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you nailed that for, for so long. One of the voices of, of televised racing, um, more to come on that. But let's just, I mean, you, you just mentioned about the lads who were in the hunt for the title on that last day, Stratford and, and Market Raisin in the evening. I remember those days. Uh, 
in those days there were the likes of the Terry Biddlecombs, um, yeah. Bob Davises. Yes. And I think who else would have been up there for the title? Maybe maybe uh, Graham Thorner, Jeff well, King, Stan Meller, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, were you ever in the hunt at, at any stage in your career? I was, I was second twice in the title, second both times to Ron Barry, who yes. was snapping up rides from everywhere. And although being based in Pooley Bridge up in, is it Cumbria? Probably. Yeah. Um, he was riding for Foot Warwin and people, you know, and uh, so second twice. And that is a very good story. On the day that I retired, the front page of the Sporting Life, big broadsheet, it was the only racing page then, the headline, two inches thick, was failure. The next line, an inch thick, was failure. And the third line, half an inch thick, failure. And you can imagine waking up to seeing that. The article was good, but obviously the sub-editor, who obviously didn't like me, you know, had picked these out. <laughs> And the three failures included the jockeys championship. So I, in the article, it, I failed to be champion jockey. I was second twice. I failed to win the Cheltenham Gold Cup. I was second twice. I failed to win the national. I was second twice. So it was a good headline, but slightly hurtful. And uh, I mean, I'm not sure at what point you were um, second on those occasions, but was was John Frankham already there? And because there was a stage where you were sort of sharing the rides, weren't you, with Fred? My last year, I shared the, the rides with him, and we were pretty equal at the end of the year. He came there, he's 10 years younger than me, and much better. I mean, he was patently better. Brilliant jockey. I, I mean, he's still my hero now. Fred Winter was my hero, and then I went on, Franken was my hero. Um, he came as a 16, 17-year-old chubby little thing, and he weighed 11 stone two. And he walked into the yard and, and Fred Winter said, oh, I've got another hopeful coming, you know, and interviewed John. And he said, look, son, I don't want to waste your time. Look at your hands and feet. You uh, look at your heavy now, you know, you'll never make a jockey. What's the lightest you've been? And Frankham said straight away, oh, seven pounds, three ounces when I was born. <laughs> I mean, he was brilliant. He still is brilliant. And unlike me, I used to do evening speaking. I'm still doing the same three routines of 35 years. Frankham is, he doesn't even have to think about it. You know, he's on the button. So anyway, Frankham walked in, you know, chubby little thing, been a show jumper, ridden for England as a junior. And he was immediately good at schooling, his, was his thing, but he was pretty untidy and he was heavy. So he's a brilliant man. He set about altering the things. He wasted, he got down. He's, in fact, if you see him now, he's lighter than his riding weight. You know, he no. plays golf all the time and uh, rides still uh, and, and eats properly. But um, he, he was good, but he was just one of a pile of lads there, you know. But I helped him out all I could. I, I was established and was getting two or three rides in lots of races. And I stuck him in and got him his first winner, Malty Gray at Worcester for a permit holder. And funny enough, this permit holder, Godfrey Burr was his name. Um, I'd ridden a winner the week Franken came called Malty Task, I think. And uh, he said to me, oh, in the phone, these are the orders, you know, Chepstow, uh, you won't hold it. He said, it's a bit mad. Um, so just sit and suffer. And I said, oh, I'll see you later, will I, at the races? He said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to church. 
I'm church warden. I said, oh, well, that's very good. Um, I'll be praying for you. <laughs> <laughs> it hit every hurdle out of the ground. I couldn't hold it. It knocked every hurdle out of the ground and won by about 12 lengths, 14 lengths, I don't know, pulling up. <laughs> so anyway, but the Frankham days were brilliant because straight away he was schooling, being such a good show jumper. And we got on so well and it worked well. But when we retired, you know, before, before he'd shared the job with me, he, I got him other contacts, the Cundles and people like that, you know. Um, and, and when I retired, there was no issue of, of jealousy at all. You know, it was evolution. He'd come to share the job. It was evolution. I'd shared it earlier, years earlier, with Paul Kellaway and evolution again. At the end of the season, we were both asked to go in the office to see Fred, different stages, Kellaway first. And he came out and Kellaway had a big sort of jutting out yeah. jaw, you know, and um, quite a hard fellow. And he wandered up to me in the yard, striding up to me with his hands on his hips. And I thought, he's going to hit me. You know, look, like I've never been having a fight, mm -hmm. but it looked as if I was about to be floored. And he stood there with his hands on his hips. He said, there's no justice. This game is, uh, I'm sick of it. He said, I can ride and I get the sack. You can only talk and you've got the job. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, he, he rode um, Bueller or Bueller, as Fred used to call him, didn't he? Yes, he rode him to his two champion hurdle yeah. wins. Uh, when he retired, I rode him to win, I think, the Kingwall pattern that, over hurdles at Wincanton. And then I rode him in his novice chase season, four, five times, won four and fell the other time. And then uh, Fred Winter said to me, this is the, I think, year before I retired, said, look, Richard, you know, you're getting older, obviously, and you've got a job here for as long as you want, sharing the rides, and I'll sort them out. But John is the future, so he will have the horses going chasing and Bueller was one of those. And Lanzarotti, which was my ride, you know, he then rode it over fences. Yeah, obviously champion hurdle win. And you were talking about the O levels and the confidence that you had and uh, maybe cocky or whatever at the time as a teenager. And I, I remember seeing the, the footage of, of Frankham um, in the build-up to the 77 Gold Cup by now. He's riding Lanzarotti, of course, on that ill-fated day. I remember that vividly as a child. And uh, Yes. Um, it, the little... The little caption that you often see, a uh, little clip, where he says, if this horse doesn't win the Gold Cup in March, I'll flat shavings. Uh, he had a real confidence about himself, didn't he? Um, yeah. But Lanzarotti could never jump hurdles, you know. I've got some photographs here, and he's coming through with his hind legs first at hurdles. If we saw a long stride and I asked him, he, he'd, he'd do it. I mean, at the last in the champion hurdle, I saw a stride, gave him a whack, and he flew it but he was not good. We used to school him all the time when he was a hurdler over the steeplechase fences. So he wasn't a natural, but for me, I, 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 am, I might be loud and brash, but it's, I'm still relatively shy about certain things and um, quite emotional. And I'm working for the BBC and there's my horse, you know, my champion hurdle horse, great handsome black horse. And at the top of the hill, he fell, and I could see on my off-air screen them pulling him off the course, you know, chain around his neck, and, and I thought, oh, I can't, I can't take this. But, you know, if you're a pro, you have to do it. You know, I didn't alter my... A bit, 
well, I'm not comparing myself, but a bit like Peter O'Sullivan commentating on a TiVo and his great horses be friendly. You have to keep talking, even though you've got one eye on this, this poor horse that's dead, you know, very, very upsetting. And of course, Bueller, uh, the same thing. Bueller died on the race course. You know, it's a tough, tough sport. More to come from Richard in a moment, but just a reminder, of course, that you can follow the podcasts on Twitter on at Sporting Lives One, and it's the same handle at Sporting Lives One as well to hook up with the, the Facebook page. Um, also available on uh, Podbean. So if you just go to, to uh, the search engine, whichever is your preferred choice, and uh, have a look for us as Sporting Lives with Jonathan Doidge. You'll find the audio-only versions on the likes of Podbean and iTunes and Spotify if you prefer to go down that route for future podcasts or, of course, stick around here on the YouTube channel. Many thanks for your support. and that You can get in touch as well on jonathandoidge at hotmail.com with any comments you've got to make or any suggestions for guests that you might like to see or hear in the future. Commercial done. Let's jump back in again with um, Richard Pittman. Um I mean, what social media punters are vitriolic about losing people, you know, and they don't understand how jockeys love their horses. And it doesn't just have to be the good ones. You know, it's horses you've ridden for several seasons. You get to know them. You know their every nuance, their character. I mean, we had Pendle, for instance. Sorry, I'm digressing. We knew when he was right, because at the end of a gallop, he would come home strutting like a German soldier, you know, the marching, and he can put his head down to the floor and put his feet above his head and do a goose step. And Fred Winter had just come past in the car or on his horse and go, right, we're ready. Mm -hmm. You know, anyway, so he, he was a good horse, but Sonny Summers ran until he was 18. Yeah. And we all, cut, we all cut our teeth on him. Everyone rode him, you know. <laughs> uh, and he was a box walker, walked all day and all night, round and round. Pendle, for instance, sorry, I'm digressing. We knew when he was right, because at the end of a gallop, he would come home strutting like a German soldier, you know, the marching, and he would put his head down to the floor and put his feet above his head and do a goose step. And Fred Winter had just come past in the car or on his horse and go, right, we're ready. Mm -hmm. You know, anyway, so he, he was a good horse, but he said, I'm going to put car tires all on the floor here everywhere no space so he's got to go daintily like a ballerino if he's going to walk in the well he was going around at a million miles and had tires were upending and everything he said and realized you can't change his character if i change this horse's character he might lose what he's got I mean, he's a great man fred winter for thinking thinking for, about human beings he was a great man for human beings as well as horses you know he'd he'd, he'd, he'd think the problem out sonny summers did he not win at 18 was it yeah yeah incredible isn't it mm. but if they're healthy jonathan you know 18 it doesn't matter what age they, they can be old say something's had 15 runs on the flat and goes jumping you know by the time they're 12 they've really had enough you know so it, it's it they're like kids. They're all different with their characters. I loved the horses. I absolutely loved it. It was a great... To be paid to do something you love, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, and, and there were some days that you um, that you clearly had to love. You mentioned Pendle briefly um, amid all that. And, of course, we, we, we've got to talk about him because uh, 
you said he was a good horse, and I think that is a, a pretty big understatement, Mr. Pittman. He was a, yeah. a brilliant horse, wasn't he, on his day? You didn't call me Mr. then, did you? I did. Uh, my father's Mr. <laughs> I'm Richard. Thank you. Um, yeah. Pendle was small, ratty little thing, little thing, you know, and, and had two horns. I've only ridden two horses that had horns. He had little horns, a bit over half an inch each. Mm -hmm. Um, which is irrelevant, but just a, a fact. And the other horse that had them, Royal Sanction, he was a good horse too. But Pendle, immediately, when we schooled him up on the Lambourne Downs, there are seven fences in three rows, and they're all together. So if a horse runs out at one, he's got to jump another one. In fact, there's a good story if we get to with Foot Warwin later on, mm -hmm. up there over those fences. But Pendle, he sent him up over the middle fence, which was the small one, and he flew them. He wasn't just bold running away. He came up a long way. He landed a long way the other side and of no effort. It didn't take any, you know. So I trotted back expecting to do it two or three more times. He said, that'll do, take him home. I said, sure. He said, I know, I know an athlete when I see one, he's fine. So he was brilliant from the start. Andy Tunnell, quite rightly, you know, big horse, intimidating me, leaning on me. I mean, if they'd ever asked, the stewards asked him, he said, oh, I couldn't, the horse was leaning in of his own volition. Well, that's rubbish, and this is part of race riding. And little Pendle, little ratty Pendle, fought him off, you know, you're not going to do that to me. And he was such a great horse. Two King Georges, he won very easily. And, <coughs> excuse me. He had a quirk, he didn't like being in front, but he was so good, he took you there. You, you could not have stopped him. If you had an anchor and chucked it out, it wouldn't have stopped him. And um, so he won them easily. And he was curling up underneath me all the way up the straight, but you didn't want to be flapping around a horse that's 25 lengths clear, you know? So I was having to hold him and just <laughs> kick him, encourage him on, and he'd win on the bridle. And everyone said, wow, you know, he could have, he could have sprinted. Well, he, he, what he needed was company. So the third year, Captain Christie lined up, and he was a novice then, very good horse. And um, he, he did have some jumping issues. And he also, he was going to make the running. So I thought, well, I'm not going to sit up his tail because if he makes a jumping issue and he's on the floor, I'm, uh, I don't want to be left in front with a circuit to go. So I idled out of the gate. Captain Christie went 10 lengths clear. Never saw him again. I think he beat me eight or 10 lengths. Very good horse. People don't give him the credit he deserves. I know we, why we're still talking about horses 40, 50 years ago. It's still amazing. But... Captain Christie was, and then won the Gold Cup. In my view, and having been second to Arkell twice, Captain Christie is the best horse since Arkell. And we've had a few, you know, we've had a lot of good horses, Corto Star and Desi and all those horses. But Captain Christie was, in my view, the best since Arkell. And we haven't seen an Arkell since. Why, why would he be better then than Desi, who did it over different distances in handicaps the, and grade ones, and Corto, who did it over different distances in grade ones? Yes, because Captain Christie beat Pendle 10 lengths and Pendle was a very, very good horse. I mean, he beat the, he beat the Dickler Pendle every time we met him, bar one, which was a rather important one. He was, a, and we beat Tingle Creek Pendle by, uh, on, as a two-miler, you know, 
so for Captain Christie to decimate him, I'm biased, obviously. And then he wins the Gold Cup. I, I, I just think he, he is the best since. Okay, so um, that brings us then to, to the two Gold Cups on, on Pendle, um, 73. Maybe we'll come back to that in a moment because second time, 74, when you get brought down, um, clearly travelling wonderfully well at the time. But if, if what you're saying about Captain Christie is true, then for all those people who, for all those years, who maybe had a few quid on Pendle and said, you know, would have walked it had he stood up, how confident are you that you would have won that day? Jonathan, he was running away. But I need to go back to 73 to get you into 74. Yeah. 73, he was odds on, his first Gold Cup. And Fred Winter said, right, how do you see the race going? And I said, I want to come halfway up the run-in. He said, crazy. If you miss the last in a Gold Cup, you know, small fields in other races you've won, but the Gold Cup, if you miss the last, you won't get back to the winner. I'd rather you were beaten being there too soon than beaten by coming too late. Prophetical, wasn't it? Mm. Um, so anyway, Pendle jumped the 73 last fence, two lengths clear of the Dick Club. And then the, the grass of the course seems to go into a little, into a little tiny narrowing strip of green with vibrant colour and people and the roar of the crowd because he was odds on. And Pendle, as I told you, in front, didn't like it. And he got to the, where the crossing is and, yeah. and, and this roar from the crowd. And he just halted. And I could feel his neck coming up underneath me. And that allowed the Dickler to come up sides and get in front. But once he got company, he ran back again. And I was beating a short head. Next stride, I'm a neck up. You know, he was flying again. So the... 74, the race you want to talk about. Um, again, odds on. And we went into the paddock and the guy that looked after him, Vince Brooks, was ashen. I said, whoa, a bit nervy then, Brooksy. I'm riding it. You know. He said, well, don't you know? I said, know what? He said, I've slept with the horse for 10 days in his stable, in the straw. And I said, well, why is that? He said, and then doing the day job. He said, because there's been an IRA threat to shoot him when he hits the front. Well, everyone knew, well, not everyone, Fred Winton, Vince knew, and the owner knew, I assume. Maybe not. And um, so when he was brought down, it's like a tripwire. And at that speed, it's like a tripwire. Vince, poor fellow, thought he'd been shot, you know, I mean, terrible. Uh, and I came in and recounted the story to the boys, and Biddlecombe said, yeah, he said, that wasn't very nice, was it? I said, no, it, it wasn't very nice. He said, no, I mean, they could have missed you and got me, shot me. That's the sort of camaraderie <laughs> thing that was there. But, but he was running away, absolutely running away. And Fred had said, look, do what you like. Come after the last this time. You know, fine, be it on your shoulders. And coming down the hill behind High Ken, I knew High Ken was a dodgy jumper uh, occasionally. And um, my point was that I would follow him down the hill and I'm going, whoa, 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 you know, whoa. And I, I was going to pull out for that fence, jump it, pull back in, get a lead round, you know. It, he was going so well. But jockeys aren't as thick as punters like to think. And both Biddlecombe and Bobby Beasley on the Dickler and Captain Christie saw me doing this and came up sides and shut the door. 
So I've got two on the outside keeping me in. I mean, it's gamesmanship, Jonathan. You know, this is race riding. Mm -hmm. They kept me in. So-and-so's law. High Ken falls, brings me down. How stupid. Now, everybody thinks I was mad and stupid. I knew what I was doing, but the plan didn't work. Anyway, it was was sad because that horse deserved to be a dual Gold Cup winner. And so did Fred Winter deserve to have another couple. Uh, So I guess... uh, there's a fairly direct comparison coming back to more recent times with Cue Card. Did you have uh, empathy then with Paddy Brennan at that moment with him? Yeah, same 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 spot. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, I, you f- I feel for everyone when things go wrong. You know, I mean, all the time. It, it, but it's what racing's about. I mean, the most bizarre incident, totally going off course. Um, Paul Townon on album photo yeah. three was, seasons ago. At, was it Punchestown? Yeah, I was there that day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> how do you how do you reconcile yourself with that? And it looked as if he was actually pulling the horse out, didn't it? You know, because yeah. whatever apparition in his head, he, he was pulling out. And he's won two more gold cups. Sadly, Pendle didn't get another chance. But these racing is bizarre, and it's theatre, it's drama. That's what it's about. Why didn't Pendle get another chance? Did he get an injury? I can't remember what, how, he had, how it came to he had, he had moderate legs, and we four times in his career had to pull up for a while and attend to his tendons, main flexor tendons. Probably because he was so exuberant, you know, such a good fast jumper. He only made one mistake in his life, and that was when I was saying to him, come here, come here, don't jump like you normally do, because I didn't want to get to the front. Um, so a lot of strain on his legs, and, and so they weren't so good. And this was one of the factors when I retired. As I said, been offered the BBC job two years before, turned it down. Five top horses to ride. Um, then, two years later, offered it again, only had two good horses. Pendle was one, but, you know, not running so often. And I, Fred Winter and I were on the muck hill, keep forking the muck up at lunchtime as... Certain lads were doing the tack and others were sweeping the yards. I'm jockey, you know. I wonder how many jockeys fork the muckle up these days. <laughs> anyway, we're there up to in our wellies, up to our knees in muck and discussing this situation about the BBC and the job. And Frankham having come up and shared it with me for the first time. And he said, uh, look, Richard, as long as you want to stay riding, you're, you're happy with your riding, You'll get your fair share of rides here and good ones too. And I said, well, there's only one thing that would stop me taking this job with the BBC. And that is if you ran Pendle in the Grand National, because I live for the National. He said, no, straight away. No, I wouldn't subject his legs to landing over beaches and other big fences because he's so brave. He said, "I, I couldn't ask him to do it. So we shook hands there, standing in the muck, and parted company. But there's a, I'm sorry, I do lead myself on a little bit, but there's a good story to that if I can just quickly get in, of course I'll forget it. I went to him two days later because I was offered a lot of jobs, one of them time form, uh, various things. And one of them was set the, the UK franchise for automatic horse walkers. They weren't around in those days. There might've been one somewhere. And so I went to Fred, thought, well, he'll have one, you see. Came in. He said, what are you doing here so quickly? You know, have a gin and tonic. And he's sitting there. I said, I've got the ideal training thing for you. 
an automatic horse walker, put them while the lads are mucking out, put them on, you know, warm He fell about laughing. He said, Richard, I've trained 3,000 winners or whatever it was without one of those things. What do I want one for? And I, as I told you, I'm a bit wet. I was so embarrassed. I said, can I borrow your phone? No mobiles in those days. Picked up the phone, rang the, the firm and re- resigned. Well, of course, they're everywhere. Everywhere, you know, it would have been a bonanza. And time form, I, I didn't like it because I'm a talkative person. I like people. Like you, it, it was so intense. You had to be at the paddock, watch them go down the start, do a pre the race, watch the net. You know, that, that didn't suit me. And there were some other jobs I can't remember. Anyway, they all went by the wayside by the BBC. So the- yeah, fascinating stuff from Richard Pittman. What a great guest to, to have on Sporting Lives. And you're in for a treat because we've still got two more parts to come. He was mentioning the BBC there, and that will be uh, the focus in part three, his days with uh, Sir Peter O'Sullivan, uh, Jimmy Lindley, and, of course, Julian Wilson. And one or two revelations as well, so do stick with us for part three. Part two, um, we're going to kick off with the Grand National and, of course, you know what that will mean. So do stick with me for part two of episode 11 with Richard Pittman. Cracking guest. Thanks to him for his time. Um, And thanks to you as well for uh, your support. Don't forget, you can, of course, follow me on Twitter on at Sporting Lives 1 or get involved on the Facebook page also at Sporting Lives 1. If you can't get to watch the podcasts on this YouTube channel, then you can find the audio versions on Podbean or on iTunes by simply searching Sporting Lives with Jonathan Deutsch. Plans for some great guests to come. But uh, next up on Sporting Lives, it will be part two of this episode 11 with Richard Pittman. Join me for that. <laughs>